Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology. He's looking forward to a memory he won't have to suppress. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good. Uh, the only thing I can think of for that, and it's I know it's completely wrong because the film is a little more serious than that, but Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, is that what that tagline is? No, no, but it's uh, from Running With Scissors. Oh, okay. I can see that. Yeah. I think it's weird. Like every time I test you with one of these these kind of tagline intros, I always ask you how you are at the end of it and because you're thinking about it, you're always like, I'm okay <laughs> Like as if to sound like, you know, we need to talk about a few things. You know, if you if you want to we can. No. I like to think that that tension is, is what has sustained the show through uh our five years and three thousand mile move on my part. Mm, yeah, yeah, we should just rename this. Is that okay? Uh, with a ta- <laughs> with tagline game at the beginning. A bit of news this week. Uh, what have we got? The Toronto Film Festival is happening right now. And whilst uh, neither myself or Ed are there, like it looks like some of the word coming out of it is good in regards to films we were excited about, such as Free Fire and Monster Calls, and also bad in some of the films that we were a little bit dubious about, including American Pastoral. Yeah, American Pastoral has been getting some of the choicest reviews of the year so far, or at least of the the award season glut of films, which is looking is shaping it to be very nice this year. I mean, a lot of the word about things like Manchester by the Sea, which was a film that everyone was calling a masterpiece out of Sundance, that's kind of been reaffirmed now that it's played at Toronto. But yeah, American Pastoral, which I think anyone who uh, I think pays attention or, or really kind of thinks about movies probably were wary of for two reasons. One, it's a, a, you know, an adaptation of the classic Philip Roth novel and he's not an author who people can really kind of see as being easily adaptable. There's nothing inherently cinematic with his work and it's very dense. It's the sort of thing that could be very difficult to put across on screen, but also because it's the directorial debut of Ewan McGregor and there are, few words that fill me with dread quite so much as actors directorial debut because those in 99% of uh, cases turn out terrible Mm. Uh, and the 1% you get like Night of the Hunter Mm. Uh, (laughs) but so far like a Night of of the Hunter or a Gone Girl uh, Gone Baby Gone they come across very very rarely yeah yeah and if anyone is looking for, I've just come up with this, seriously just come up with this, if you're wondering whether Ewan McGregor could direct a adaptation of a Philip Roth novel, then my review headline of The Roth of Kant is available, <laughs> if anyone wants it. Yeah, go nuts, I won't charge any kind of fee beyond the standard 10% consultancy. Free Fire is a film, the Ben Wheatley film was a film we were quite excited about. And uh, I mean, just from the premise of essentially a shootout in a warehouse with a really great cast that happens in real time, um, sounded good. And the fact that Scorsese was executive producing it was exciting. But then the trailer dropped this week as it premiered in um, Toronto, and it looks fucking nuts. It does. I've I've been looking forward to it for quite a while because obviously Ben Wheatley is someone that we both like. We've liked a lot of his films, and it's just really weird to see 
uh, a British genre filmmaker actually managed to keep making films at a kind of a healthy clip. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to be that you don't usually do that unless you you go the Christopher Nolan route and only work in Hollywood. Uh, and it looks like he's done a good one with this, assembled an amazing cast. It was also very weird because I saw the trailer immediately after watching a little bit of The Social Network mm -hmm. uh, on TV, which also stars Army Hammer. And it did leave me thinking, uh, feeling kind of sad that Army Hammer, despite getting some kind of big roles and doing a lot of good work over the last couple of years, hasn't become become the big breakout star that I think I certainly hoped he would be after seeing him give two really good performances in the social network but mm. uh, this one looks like he's having a lot of fun as do the rest of the cast uh, and i do like the fact that the film is literally a shootout breaks out in a warehouse and it seems to be just about all of these uh wonderfully attired people in the 70s trying to murder each other mm. and uh it's got some serious pedigree now and uh, brie larson's in it um kind of obviously she you know, shot that way before she kind of won her Oscar. Um, but also Michael Smiley's still <laughs> cropping up. I think he's yeah. in, he's been in every Ben Wheatley film so far, I think. I've not seen High Rise, but I'm sure he managed to crowbar him in there somewhere. Just the fact that uh, Tyres is in uh, is in, in a kind of a, a Scorsese-produced um, action film uh, just fills me with joy. Mm -hmm. Sparring off of Scoop McNary, the best-named actor in film today. Yeah, I remember like Scoot McNary. He was in um, a little indie film called uh, In Search of a Midnight Kiss. Mm. Um, I don't know if you remember it, but like uh, it was kind of like before before kind of Sunrise, but uh, um, kind of on a bit more of a budget, which is a bit less of a budget, uh, which is hard to imagine. Um, but I remember thinking at the time when I saw it, I was like, I mean, this film's all right, but like I don't think this is going to be the breakout success for Scoot McNary that he deserves, his name deserves. Um, but then, lo and behold. He's everywhere. But he's not in Free Fire, as I just found out. <laughs> oh, goddamn son of a I bitch. I thought he was, but uh, I'm confusing him with someone else. I think I'm like, oh, S Killian Murphy is who I'm confusing him with. Right, okay. Who's similarly got an awesome name, Yeah, but he's no, he's no Scoot McNary. No, I think the, the, the problem is that everyone in the film has facial hair, and as such, it, they kind of all blend together, all of these... Uh, white brilliantly named actors with uh, mm. with various uh facial hair also i i greatly enjoyed Chateau copley in the film which is not something i can i've been able to say for a while so it's nice to see him doing kind of a, a sparkling performance based on that trailer yeah he's from district nine is that right yep district nine yes. mm, oh, chappy jesus Oh, fucking Chappie, jesus christ mm, good oh. god just i just remembered that Chappie happened last year that's an unpleasant memory. That's a memory I want to suppress, going back to our uh, <laughs> our tagline. Last week we talked about, um, kind of, oh, Jesus, Suicide Squad, talking about suppressing memories, but we talked about the kind of the state of the blockbuster now. It's been a, a lousy summer, we won't get into it again, but uh, we mentioned briefly the film Ben-Hur, the remake that literally no one was asking for and everyone forgot about. And uh, yeah, I just have to say that it kind of came out in the last couple of weeks and the reviews were not should we say stellar um, audience response? Uh, also not stellar. Um, what was stellar was that the Guardian's review line went with um, chariots of dire, which is mm. pretty good. Uh, but that's probably the best thing about the film is the, uh, the the negative review headlines. But the numbers are kind of in, and they are pretty shocking. And it kind of backs up what we were saying about how lousy this summer has been for 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 money. It's going to be projected to lose something like 120 million dollars which is not really chump change, is it? 
No, that's pretty sizable loss for for any studio. Um, I think is it Warner Brothers who are behind. I'm that gonna one? say. Pro- oh no, pa- Paramount who okay. are behind that one. Who I think have not had a particularly good summer in general. And when your film is, you know, has made less money than Florence Foster Jenkins, the film with Meryl Streep not being able to sing, mm-hmm. uh, you're in pr- in a pretty bad way. Uh, although they, although Paramount were also behind Florence Foster Jenkins, so they're making some money somewhere. Mm, they're even on that one. Yeah, that's about it. The last bit of news we've got in the uh, this week's kind of roundup is a little bit of remake news. Um, the film Alien Nation, which is you know a the worst pun title of a film you could ever imagine. Um, it, it sounds like the kind of the the title they wrote down and said, "Well, we'll, we'll come up with something better. We promise," and then. Or before they know it, it's on the fucking poster. But they're remaking that, and, you know, that's unsurprising. And also kind of fairly welcome, because Alien Nation is a film that isn't particularly very good. So, you know, if you're going to remake something, remake something that's not great. Um, but the interesting spin on it comes from the fact that they've got Jeff Nichols in to direct it. Jeff Nichols, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a director we're very fond of. Uh, most recently, he did Midnight Special, which I think probably proves his kind of slightly more big budget chops. Um, but before that, he was behind films such as Shotgun Stories and uh, Take Shelter. Um, what else did he do before then? Mud. Mud, yeah, yeah. recent one. So he, yeah, he was part of the reconnaissance. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he's a kind of very kind of downbeat and gritty and but also kind of lyrical kind of filmmaker. And that's a, that's a pretty interesting development, don't you think? Yeah, and I think also because he's also got the movie Loving coming out in the next couple of weeks with uh, or next couple of months with uh, Joel Edgerton and Ruth Nager, which has been getting some fantastic reviews at film festivals and looks like it could be a strong contender when it comes to you know the awards season, which is all very exciting because he's a filmmaker who has had some great critical success. You know, all of his films have got good reviews. A little bit of commercial success with Mud, but everything else has kind of just done okay. So it's very exciting to see him expanding and, and doing bigger and more interesting things. And like you say, it's always more worthwhile remaking a film that's got a good idea but didn't quite work than just going for, you know, a big brand name. Mm. Um, you know, it's not like constantly remaking Spider-Man. You know, like Alienation is a film that, isn't particularly well remembered but there's an interesting subtext to be drawn from the idea of aliens arriving on earth being treated as you know immigrants and and trying to integrate into society and things like that and i think it certainly has more relevance now um or it was relevant at the time but you know there's there's still relevance to it Uh, but at the same time um someone on facebook was posting about this news in the week and their comment was i hope he's not going all david gordon green on us Mm. Uh, and that's always a concern when someone who is kind of an, an acclaimed lyrical indie filmmaker suddenly transitions into making more kind of conventional stuff that they'll kind of get lost in the system. Um, but but like I say, it's not like he's gone to work for Marvel. It's not like they're going to grind out all the individuality. Mm. Which is, that, I mean, the David Gordon Green thing is is a very very strange case because for those of you who don't know. Uh, he was uh, very similar in style to to Jeff Nichols. Um, I think he probably 
might have come after him. I think uh, George Washington, his debut, which everyone should seek out because it's fucking amazing, um, probably came after uh, Shotgun Stories, or maybe they might have been like pretty much exactly the same time. I think um, Shotgun Stories was like 2005 or something. So oh, maybe George Washington is definitely first then. I, I, I think, I'll just double check, but I think that David Gordon Green actually may have produced some of Jeff Nichols' stuff. Oh, wow. Well, it makes sense. They've kind of got both got kind of like a similar kind of outlook on things but then david gordon green made a few films george washington all the real girls he did uh, undertow um and then he decided to start making kind of like stoner comedies with um franco and rogan and ended up making panoply express and he also did um uh, your highness uh, mm-hmm. but then he also directed like a whole bunch of tv like good tea did eastbound and down a lot of eastbound and down i think which is a very odd path for your career to take. And whilst those films aren't kind of terrible shill jobs, you have to wonder where the kind of indie filmmaker went and all that. Yeah, I think the fact that he and Danny McBride have been like friends for their entire careers uh, and they went to school together probably factors into that. Mm. Uh, Danny McBride was clearly the connection to the whole cr- uh, fr- Franco crew. Mm. Uh, and you kind of get the sense that him moving to do the Pineapple Express thing was... A stepping stone in order to help them do things like Eastbound and Down or, you know, to, to kind of move into doing something a little more interesting. But uh, he's clearly just thought, well, I enjoy hanging out with these people. I'll make... We also did The Sitter with Jonah Hill. Oh, God. Which um, was not a highlight for anyone. Mm. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, and he seems to have moved back with, like, Joe and Prince Avalanche. He's moved toward, back towards his endurance a little bit more recently, but it does feel... His career has has gone on this weird circuitous path where it got seemed to get waylaid for a few years. And uh, I can confirm that David Gordon Green did produce Shotgun Stories. Ah, so okay, cool. It, it's unsurprising that uh, people would draw comparisons between the two. Mm. I'm starting to wonder whether David Gordon Green was making George Washington and, and all the real girls and thinking, I can't wait to stop this indie shit so I can do a stoner comedy. <laughs> Finally, get my big break. This is I'm wasting my time here. Terence Malick has been doing the same thing for forty years. Mm, He's just yeah, yeah. waiting to get to get a chance to work with uh, with Sandler. Yeah, to do like one of it, like a straight to Netflix Adam Sandler. I noticed the other day it was just like on Netflix and it just popped up, and I was like, "There's another film with him that's a Netflix exclusive that's not that Western one. It's like another one. I think it's called The Do Over with David mm. Spade, and you know the words with David Spade kind of send a shiver down my spine." Um, but yeah, I was just like, is he going to be doing this? Just like kind of creeping these out, that, the films out that no one cares about, that no one wants to see, that just clog up people's Netflix queues. I think he's got like a six film deal with them. Wow. So he's got he's got a few more to come, but that one I think was delivered with considerably less hype than the Ridiculous Six, because mm. that one did seem to get a lot of attention in the run up, and then the do over really was like, oh, like. People are writing terrible reviews of this horrible movie that exists, apparently, which was uh, was an interesting uh, case of anti-hype, I think. Mm, yeah, yeah. I just wonder if he'll like sneak one in, like he'll sneak out like a punch drunk love type uh, kind of like critical masterpiece that no one watches because it's just an Adam Sandler Netflix film. He he made the six film deal, but it was like, well, I'll do five for you, and I'll do one for me, and like lurking under the surface somewhere is 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 a masterwork. Yeah, he's going to reteam with 
PTA once he's finished with his 50s fashion movie with Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm. That was confirmed, wasn't it? I just want to know that that's, yeah. that's actually happening. That's not just a rumour now. Yeah, and uh, working again with Megan Ellison, who uh, has... I think her crown for being kind of the saviour of indie film has been taken away by A24, mm. who seems to just be putting out everything these days. But uh, that was that was very heartening, especially because like the news was, oh yeah, they're working together and it's going to come out next year, as opposed to his previous uh, work schedule, which seems to be, yeah, I'm going to be working on this movie for like seven years on and off and eventually you'll see it. Mm. Is that enough time though for Daniel Day-Lewis to kind of effectively get himself into character? Because we know how he likes to kind of immerse himself in roles. Well... Unbeknownst to all of us, he has been Ralph Lauren the entire time. So, mm, God damn it! Wasn't he in that that fucking film called? Was it called Nine? Yes, the uh, adaptation of the musical version of Eight and a Half. Yeah, yeah, that didn't go down too well. I got the feeling he didn't even read the script for that one. Do you think that he sang every day in the lead up to it? Just kind of sang about what he was doing. Hmm. Possibly. That would be the best way. Just kind of drinking and just like. I'm shooing. <laughs> Do you think they're like, we talked last week briefly about how Jared Leto has ruined method acting yeah. now forever. Do you think yeah, yeah. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis has watched Suicide Squad and you know, he's like, fuck this, I'm just going to I'm just gonna turn up, hit, look down, hit my mark and uh, you know, say the line. Yeah, Spencer Tracy it. Yeah. Kind of like, ah, this is where I stand and now talk. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the only way. He's got his three Oscars. He'll probably get a fourth one for the PGA thing just because he hasn't been on the screen in like five years. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think he, it's a good time for him to kind of step away from it, especially because like around the time that Lincoln came out, there were lots of, you know, he went to a lot of award ceremonies and gave speeches and stuff. And uh, it reminded me that he's actually a really charming guy. <laughs> he's like, you know, as a, as him, He's like a hugely charged, charismatic guy. Uh, and you kind of maybe think, oh, yeah, you don't really need to do do all of this kind of extra bullshit to remind us all that you're really great at what you do. Mm, yeah. Yeah, Adam Sandler doesn't do that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he's neither. He's not charming on screen or off. Mm. <laughs> Actually, supposedly, he's the nicest guy in Hollywood. But, you know, personally, uh, I've never had a good interaction with him, so that's all hearsay as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we're going to talk about the film Pan's Labyrinth, because that is ten years old, Ed. That has flown by. Yes, and it was very interesting today, because uh, we both rewatched the film in anticipation of talking about it, uh, and I thought, thought it was interesting that we're coming from very different places, because you watch it fairly often, because it's one of your wife's favourite films, and I, despite only get on DVD, have not watched it since the cinema. Wow, yeah, yeah. It is, it is actually my wife's favourite film, and my wife is, uh, I was going to say famously, but no, she's not that famous. Um, <laughs> she really doesn't like anything with kind of violence in it, or anything that is kind of horrifying or upsetting. Um, she likes films, you know, that are kind of, uh, I mean, they feature mild peril, should we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pan's Labyrinth features, uh, you know, brutal, bloody violence. Uh, that is a hard film to watch. Uh, in places, um, and yeah, I was I've seen it quite a few times. And I'm still not numb to the to some of the more explosively violent scenes. Watching it today, there was there were, I, I made a list of like the things that I remembered really clearly, and it was the, the cap Captain Vidal smashing a guy's face in with a bottle, uh, the fa- his face getting slashed up, and the pale man basically the the the, the three really horrifying most horrifying scenes, and. 
in my head i thought okay it's been 10 years you've watched a lot more films than with featuring horrible graphic violence uh you'll be fine with this and like the bottle scene started and then it cuts to a shot and you see that the guy's face is caving in mm. i was like oh this is every bit as bad as i remembered if not worse it's mm. incredibly brutal in a way that uh i wasn't prepared for at the time and even with advanced knowledge still wasn't quite prepared for i remember seeing pan's labyrinth uh for the first time at the cinema and just a kind of a brief footnote i've realized doing kind of research for this and kind of writing my notes and stuff that labyrinth is a word that i 100 percent cannot spell um <laughs> at all it's it's tricksy it is very tricksy so like, where's the i go where's the y go and just like yeah don't like that very much but anyway the, uh, i saw it at the cinema and it was the very first film i saw that was digitally projected oh wow uh, I think it was just after the showroom had installed their kind of digital projectors, and I seem to remember that when the you know the BBFC card comes up at the t- at the uh, kind of the the start of the film that kind of you know states the certificate, that there was kind of no wobble in it, there was no kind of like grain or flicker to it, and I was like, hmm, something's different here. And then the film kind of kicked in, and then I kind of instantly forgot about it. So you didn't uh, set fire to the screen in the the way of like audiences for Boonwell films. No, yeah, this film's crap. Let's slash the sheet seats. No, <laughs> is that what they say? Slash the seats. Yeah, yeah uh, and that kind of just leads me like it makes me think about that digital projection because there's kind of like a sniffiness about um, DCP projection, which is kind of the majority of what people will be seeing now if they go to like a, anything other than a kind of a boutique cinema, I guess. And, you know, just if, in case people were wondering, um, there is kind of a magic to 35mm. There's kind of like a, a kind of like a warmth and a, uh, a kind of uh, a really lovely feel about sitting down and kind of hearing the, the film flood through the gate and kind of the flicker. And, and it just kind of adds to it because that's what we've grown up with. But I would say that, like, I don't think audiences really give a shit beyond the kind of like, you know, the people who do even know what 35mm is. I would say that I've seen both 35mm and DCP projected terribly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've seen some films that have been borderline unwatchable on film. Um, I've watched prints um, that appear to have been dragged through a hedge and have had bits missing. And I've also seen DCP projected in you know big chain cinemas. And I actually had someone I was with leave the cinema to check that we weren't in a 3D screening because it was so out of focus. Oh, wow. So... Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, this is a side point, but like, how do you feel about it, Ed? Well, I think, like you say, there's, there's a, a magic to it, you know, there's something intangible about it. And I think from a preservation point of view, like a print kept in good condition in like a refrigerated storage room somewhere will last more or less forever. Whereas with uh, digital stuff, we don't have that kind of safeguard you know, something could get deleted or corrupted and then you've lost the film forever. So that is kind of a nightmare scenario. But yeah, like you say, if you, I've had bad experiences with both. Uh, When I worked at the showroom, there were several occasions when we would get the DCP, we would get the hard drive through and then uh, no one would give us the code for unlocking it. So we would have to cancel screenings because we had the physical thing there, but we didn't have the thing that allowed us to show it, uh, which is terrible. And like, like you say, um the ease with which it, a film can be shown with you know one projectionist manning 12 screens means that stuff goes wrong pretty frequently probably more frequently than it did with 35 millimeter when you had proje- uh, projectionists who were able to keep an eye on things 
but you know, it, quality wise, I don't think there's a much to be uh, kind of argued about. You know, DCP is often clearer. Uh, you don't get as when I went to see a, a screening of the thing one ha- Halloween, where the print was so old that all of the there was a pink tinge to it, so it looked like the film was taking place in a land of cotton candy instead of snow. <laughs> Uh, you don't get that, although you know there is something nice seeing that and knowing that there's a history to it. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I am not kind of a purist. I'm just happy that you can watch a film, like whether or not it's on film or on a DCP. Being able to see a film is kind of the important thing for me. Mm. I've got this image of like the staff at that cinema when they got the hard drive and they couldn't access it, having to run it around to the local phone shop to get it unlocked so it could be played <laughs> played on any network. But yeah, coming up empty-handed. It was it was a anyway, bit more. It was a bit more like the finale of Zoolander, where it's like it's in the hard drive, and then just like <laughs> kicking it down the stairs to break it open. Yeah, that seems more likely. Uh, that <laughs> diversion aside, uh, let's talk about Pan's Labyrinth in a kind of more specific sense. Um, it is of course directed by uh, Guillermo del Toro. At that point in his career, he'd made a couple of American films. Um, he had um, done stuff like Kronos and The Devil's Backbone, which were kind of like reasonable kind of genre crossover world cinema hits, I guess. But Pan's Labyrinth really put him over the top, I guess. And we talked uh, last week or the week before about the BF, uh, no, the BBC's top 100 films of the 21st century. And Pan's Labyrinth was, it was somewhere in the top 20. I can't remember exactly where. And you, you see that and you think, mm, yeah, that's about right. That This is a, a kind of a, a modern classic, I guess, and kind of undisputedly so. Yeah, and, and that has been the case since it came out, because when it was released, it was a critical darling in a, in a huge major way. It was, it was uh, on a lot of top 10 lists for the year. It was nominated for six Oscars, which, you know, is, is crazy for a foreign language movie. And it was a, a film that, from the at the time people were saying oh yeah this is like clearly a masterpiece and i always uh recoil when people say that when a film is literally just out you know mm-hmm. it's kind of it's, it's something i feel you can only say about a film that's been around for you know let's say five years as an arbitrary like length of time that's the once you have a bit of distance and you can say okay yeah this film stands on its own or this film has had like a huge influence uh and you know 10 years on i'm not sure if the film has necessarily had uh, an influence or an impact, although I'm sure a lot of filmmakers watched it and were inspired by it. But it definitely is one rewatching it now. You're like, oh yeah, I can I remember why I fell in love with this film, why all these other people fell in love with this film ten years ago. It is like a marvelous, magical piece of work. Hmm. And w- where was Del Toro in his career at that point? Because it's weird to think that someone could be. You know, I mean, he'd made Blade two before then had he yeah he had just directed blade two and hellboy back to back those mm-hmm. were his two most recent movies before then it was the devil's backbone which was very much kind of a companion piece of this similarly set in spain around the civil war although uh the devil's backbone took place at the start of the civil war and trans labyrinth takes place after the civil war is finished and just as world war Two is kind of winding down uh, before then, he'd done Mimic, which was kind of a notoriously terrible experience for him. Uh, I, I watched an interview he did with Mark Kermo today where he said that, you know, the two most uh, terrifying and horrifying events in his life were his dad being kidnapped and working with Miramax. 
And mm. that's just kind of his talking about his experience on Mimic uh, and, yeah, his debut, Kronos. So he'd had, this mm. was his sixth film. Uh, and this definitely felt like the film that pushed him over the edge from being someone that was acclaimed and well-known to being like Guillermo del Toro, like a name that people knew, a director whose every move is chronicled by like film sites. Every time he's attached to director film or every time that he's attached to as a producer, um, hit, people will write stories about him. And that wasn't the case prior to Pan's Labyrinth. This was very much the thing that turned him into a significant cult director. Mm. Mimic the I think nineteen ninety seven ninety eight mm-hmm. uh, kind of insects are amongst us uh, horror film uh, was not only a notoriously um, terrifying experience for um, Guillermo del Toro but it was a notoriously dreadful experience for me because uh, it's it's really shit <laughs> it's really not very good uh, there's a couple of like weird moments in it which like you wouldn't expect to see in a kind of like low mid budget kind of Hollywood horror thriller i guess um but yeah it's really not very good it's like it's not as good as the relic which is not a good thing to say about a film <laughs> it's very interesting hearing him talk about it because one of the things about game del toro that i really love and and something that is uh, i think has, has become more apparent over the time is when he talks about his films he talks about them in very lofty terms and uh, and sometimes the terms you use sound ridiculous but then when you watch the film you go okay yeah i can definitely see where you're going with that and when he talks about his original idea for mimic it was like a biblical story featuring giant insects and it was the idea mm-hmm. that the story was going to be about god deciding that humanity has done a terrible job and now he's going to let the insects take over uh and then saying that that is not in the final film <laughs> that was definitely something that he was uh that didn't come across and that uh, it was a uh, a painful experience for him seeing a film that he had he thought could be really interesting turned into something that he uh you know can't embrace because it just mm. didn't turn out to what he wanted. But it was the film that taught him to say no <laughs> to people who make terrible suggestions and who try to kind of compromise what he wanted. And and in, in the same way that like Paul Thomas Anderson's experience on Hard Eight made him make Boogie Nights the way that he did, or make basically every film he's made since then, uh, I think you can really see his experience doing Mimic leading to The Devil's Backbone and eventually to Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. And we talk about Guillermo del Toro being kind of his every move chronicled on on kind of news sites and, and he's kind of uh, hotly followed by, you know, connoisseurs of film and, and kind of film geeks alike. It's because he's occupies kind of a very interesting position in the world of film, one that really only used to be solely occupied by someone like Tim Burton, mm. a, a director who... Instantly, as soon as you say their name, you will associate a visual style as well and more a kind of an art style, an art direction style, a production design style because Guillermo del Toro is so kind of intrinsically linked with the look of his film in a way that other directors aren't. And obviously, a lot of directors have visual styles and kind of flourishes and ticks that they kind of keep coming back to. But someone like del Toro or Tim Burton has... Because uh, they're artists, aren't they? They're designers. They they kind of uh, design all the stuff. They come up with all the stuff, and then obviously the the crews translate that into a kind of moving image. I guess. Can you think of anyone else who would occupy that that kind of space along with those two? When you say that, the, the first thing that comes to mind are animators, like mm, Miyazaki yeah. or Henry Selick. 
you know, mm-hmm. but that's that's more just like, oh, this is the medium they work in, of course they work. And I think that uh, it's very interesting that you you say that about you know Burton and Gel- Del Toro. I hadn't made that connection myself, but that definitely rings true in the you know black and white stripes for De- for for Burton is very much like clockwork and insects for Guillermo del Toro. They have visual motifs that they return to in all of their movies uh, and uh, in Burton's case it kind of became stultifying and it ended up overwhelming him and and it hasn't quite happened with del Toro yet thankfully um possibly because he's not as prolific <laughs> so he uh, hasn't had time to kind of wear out his, his welcome but that is that is definitely uh, true that he has a not necessarily a visual style like if you compare the look of pan's labyrinth to blade 2 <laughs> or or even to devil's backbone you know the the color palette is very different you don't get the different hues that he uses in this film to delineate between the real world and the magical world uh, the magical elements uh, he he changes it up from film to film but there are definite motifs that he returns to over and over that are clearly his his obsessions mm. and it's um, it's like watching it again today. There's there's a lot that I kind of never particularly noticed before. Um, something like the the captain uh, is obsessed with kind of his father's watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the 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 room he occupies in the the kind of farmhouse compound they're in, uh, it's designed to look like the inside of a watch. Mm-hmm. Like there's you know the staircase has got like little ruts that come out and make it look like cogs, and there's kind of bits that make no actual sense to be in there but they kind of just trick your eye and your mind to feel like oh i'm inside a clock here and then it just all feeds into i mean this is kind of what you get when an artist designs a film and kind of you know is is the person in charge and like uh, Guillermo del Toro is famous for uh, designing most of the elements for it uh, obviously doesn't do everything but uh, he does them in kind of huge notebooks doesn't he and he, mm-hmm. he uh, famously lost one on in a london cab and kind of had it returned when a a kind of plea went out on the internet, um, but I mean he is utterly distinct uh, in his in his in his work, and Pan's Labyrinth is probably the apotheosis of of uh, that means like pinnacle, right? Yeah. Good. Um, what's the one that means opposite? Antithesis. Yeah. It's not that. So it's like the apotheosis of that style. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the the captain's kind of um, bedroom or, or workshop or whatever it is that he kind of occupies because uh, um i was you know looking and reading up about the film today and something that i thought was very interesting was that that there's kind of two um recurring motifs in the film that that are used to delineate the world of captain vega who is uh, sorry captain vidal who is uh, you know this this fascist captain and the magical world that the the uh the uh, uh not moana moana is her name in the fantasy world what's fantasy her name world. uh ophelia ophelia that's right yeah uh ophelia uh the, the 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 magical world that she goes into one of which is that the real world is all blues and like dark greens to make it seem very cold and alienating and all of the magical worlds are in kind of like gold and hues and reds and things like that to make it very inviting but also the other thing is that uh there was a conscious choice to make all the magical stuff uh uterine and uh related to the womb because the idea being that um this girl is facing the prospect of a dismal world with this you know this uh terrible cruel stepfather and this ongoing conflict going on and so the the idea of heaven for her would be to return to the womb and so that's why those designs are and so every time there's like a fantasy sequence everything is 
very rounded and kind of more organic and everything to do with the captain is very kind of straight lined and harsh and that really goes again into the idea of the clock everything kind of fits together everything is very angular and geometric uh, and i found that to be once that was pointed out and, and i was watching the film today i found that to be uh, very interesting how that is all suggested uh, in the visual art and then when you notice it you realize oh this is actually incredibly subtly done but it really kind of works in a great uh, subconscious way to affect your mood uh, and to kind of reinforce the difference between the worlds mm, absolutely uh, it uses a lot of practical effects alongside some uh, cgi which is uh, he's kind of carried on doing that i think pacific room is probably one of his films where it was kind of leaned more heavily to uh, to CGI mm-hmm. um, but there's one thing that I'll always be constantly reminded by in this film which is no matter who's directing it and how good an artist you are CGI bullet hits will always look bad yeah those parts although when um, spoilers I guess <laughs> when <laughs> Captain Vidal gets shot in the face at the very end sure. the the um, kind of slow pooling of blood in his eye under where the bullet goes in is a very nice effect mm-hmm. but yeah every time they like shoot a rebel on the ground and everything it looks it, it doesn't look great mm, yeah depart see also the departed mm. um yep. which is another film that um should know better but yeah the, i mean the the kind of images that are kind of seared into your mind afterwards i mean anyone who's not haunted or kind of has their nightmares fueled by the pale man mm-hmm. is yeah they're just not right yeah the pale man played brilliantly by doug jones who um, we were talking before this how the members of the cast few of them except for the the uh, actress who plays the young girl who is now one of the leads in the shinara series on mtv uh, but that's kind of like the most high profile thing she's done for, for quite a while uh, none of the actors did what occasionally have what, what tends to happen with um like art, uh world cinema hits uh which is kind of trying to segue into a hollywood career if you look at someone like omar sai who was obviously a big it was in the intouchables which was a massive global hit he used that to kind of as a launch pad to be in like the x-men films and jurassic world and things like that um that didn't really happen for anyone here the only actor that actually got kind of a boost and suddenly became in demand was doug jones who is the only one in the film whose face you don't see and whose voice you don't hear Mm, yeah uh, he's the the kind of uh, the, the physical performer who drives the fawn. He's also the pale man. I think that's it for that. But he also plays uh, one of the main characters in Hellboy, who's voiced by Niles Crane. I can't remember the the character name. Uh, Abe Sapien. Abe Sapien. There Although he he only voice he he does voice him in the second one. Right. Oh, he does. Does he? Yeah, because uh, David Hyde Pierce insisted that his voice his credit be taken off Hellboy because he said. He was just doing a Doug Jones impression the whole time, and he felt that Doug Jones deserved more of the credit for the performance. And so for the oh, second, what nice guy? Yeah. So for the second one, it's all it's all Doug Jones. But yeah, for, for the most part, he's or or, or he's also uh, for me, you know, kind of iconic for playing one of the gentlemen in Buffy, who are the uh, silent, horribly smiling guys who rip people's hearts out in the classic episode Hush. Uh, but mm. yeah, he's a, a kind of a physical mime artist essentially who. Uh, also he plays a thin clown in batman returns which like when you look at his credits and you see what films he was in they all make total sense for the kind of work that he has become known for mm, yeah yeah he's he, i kind of feel sorry for him like he's a bit like andy circus he's like clearly amazing mm. but people just won't let them act in a pair of trousers yeah um, <laughs> do you know what i mean just you know give the guy a fucking break what 
kind of uh, legacy do you think that like Pan's Labyrinth uh, will have? Like I say, it's not immediately obvious of a you know, raft of films that have come out inspired by it. But you know, do you think it's a coincidence that Tim Burton did like Alice in Wonderland after this? Uh, I think it definitely it could probably have inspired a lot of people to who wanted to make fairy tale stories. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not necessarily adaptations of existing fairy tales, but ones that are kind of magical and sincere, which I think is a big part of what certainly for me what what is a kind of Guillermo del Toro's appeal is he's a very sincere filmmaker. He doesn't really abide by cynicism all of his movies are very kind of straightforward and sometimes to their detriment for for people who don't like something like pacific rim uh which i know is is you mm. <laughs> and a bunch of people but that, that's a film that's very earnest in like yeah it's just a movie about giant robots hitting each other um or crimson peak from last year which is very earnest about being kind of a gothic romance and things like that um i think i think that that probably uh is kind of a huge thing but i think it's it's greater legacy may be the fact that it came out in the same year as children of men and Babel, and they were like between those films they were all directed by mexican filmmakers who are all friends and knew each other which is obviously del toro alfonso Cuarón who directed children of men and uh inaritu who directed Babel, and between them they got like something like 13 or 14 oscar nominations and it was the biggest year ever for mexican filmmakers at the oscars between them all getting a nomination apiece for writing or directing uh people like uh guillermo navarro who was nominated and won for his cinematography for uh for pan's labyrinth uh or or emmanuel lebetsky who was nominated for babel and oh no for uh, children of men sorry uh and has since gone on to win cinematography three times uh i i feel like it was a, a watershed moment for a lot of mexican artists and filmmakers who who since have gone on to kind of continue to do work in hollywood and to kind of uh diversify in as much as it's possible in a, in a uh industry that doesn't offer a lot of opportunities for people who aren't white uh it's given them uh it's kind of allowed them to kind of go out and diversify the, the pool of talent a little bit mm. and it's i mean they have gone on to work in the sense that like i mean in in the shape of uh birdman the revenant and gravity uh you've got kind of three of the you know, biggest, most successful critical and awards films of the last five years, all directed mm. by Inaritu or Quaron. Yeah, so it's also interesting looking back that that year, you know, if you were to say which of these three directors will be the first to win Best Director, I think most people based on Pan's Labyrinth would probably have said, oh, it would probably be Del Toro mm. because he's coming off of this, like, uh, watershed moment in his career, this kind of beautiful film that melds his lyrical and artistic side with his grasp of kind of basic storytelling and structure and pulpy aspects. Um, because like for is you know, it's a film that is brilliantly structured around the idea of fairy tales, you know, the collecting three objects and things like that, which is the best, you know, that, that is just like such clear story structure. It's like she has to collect these three things in order to, you know, claim her uh, place in this kind of magical kingdom. Uh, and, um, but I think possibly because his career was kind of derailed a little bit by uh, the Hobbit fiasco, mm-hmm. uh, that he he basically couldn't make the films that he maybe would have wanted to make, and the other two kind of uh, made up the difference in in that time. 
But yeah, I think maybe that's his biggest legacy is that it made him such a huge deal that he could be offered the chance to direct the Hobbit movies uh, and so moved to New Zealand for several years and then ended up not being able to make them. Mm. I kind of still wonder what that was all about, you know, like if they're happy enough to, you know, shift the filming around and let Peter Jackson kind of direct it, like how hard would it have been to have Guillermo del Toro like just put something off a bit and do this and kind of make the Hobbit films? Or do you think there was something more to it? I mean, the official explanation has been that, uh, was it Lionsgate who went bankrupt? Who was behind it? Possibly, yeah. Which, whichever company it was behind it. New Line. New Line, that's right, yeah. Yeah, New Line went bankrupt, which meant that there was no money around for a while, and so the filming had to be delayed. And I think the, the official story was that Guillermo del Toro just basically said, I can't wait around. I can't not make movies because we're waiting for the money to come up. I can't force my family to live in a different country because we're waiting for the stuff to come together. I want to go off and do other things. Um, so that's the official explanation uh and and no one has kind of contradicted that in the years later although i think a lot of people do think that there was probably a lot of um sparring because he was like a new figure coming in to this to work with these people who had made the previous movies and he is by nature very demanding uh he's someone who if you 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 listen to people talk about designing the creatures for his his movies how he'll come up with an idea and then they'll make it and send him like the model or something and he'll look at it and then suddenly he'll redesign it entirely because he likes what they've done but it's inspired him to do something else like with the pale man he came with this idea he says he wanted to create a creature that looked like a fat man who's lost a huge amount of weight and so he's all kind of flappy and disgusting and they made it for him and then he completely redesigned the face and they had to make an entire another suit uh, because he, he suddenly came up with a better idea. And that is probably something that works when you're working on like a $19 million move, Spanish language movie or you're working with expectations that aren't, that aren't that high. But when you are being put in charge of a prequel to one of the most successful films of the past decade, uh, that probably doesn't go over well with like producers and suits and the people who will try and tell you no you can't do that mm. do you think uh the pacific room thing has kind of not tarnished just the wrong word but kind of affected his kind of pull in hollywood do you think that because that didn't quite do as well as people had hoped that perhaps when looking at something that Guillermo del toro might be behind they want to scale it back a little um I don't think so. That doesn't seem to hurt most filmmakers. It didn't stop Tamir Beck Membertov making Ben-Hur after Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter failed. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like that's hurt his career. I think probably what hurt him more was just the fact that he couldn't make a film for five years mm. because he was tied up with all of this Hobbit stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's absence... like when you, if you go try, if you have like an absence on your CV, you have to explain <laughs> it to your new employees. What, uh, so, Mr. Del Sorry, what were you doing for these five years? Yeah. yeah, I was I was in New Zealand traveling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have anything to do with these Hobbit, Hobbit movies, did you? No, sir, I did not. Yeah, and he couldn't even sign on for the dole. Mm. He was like, oh, you've been traveling? No, <laughs> honest, I haven't. Yeah, it's yeah, I, yeah. Kind of, I just always think that I I don't know whether I think of Pacific Room differently because A I thought it was awful, 
and B, it didn't do particularly well, and C, he's not involved in the sequel, or there's been a lot of faff about the sequel of like they they pulled the plug on it, and then it was back on, then it was moved to another studio, and all this kind of stuff. That I just kind of look at it as an abject failure, but really I shouldn't. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's a weird one, and I think it is representative of how it's hard to quantify something as being a success or a failure anymore in Hollywood. It's like, ah, it did well overseas, but it was also really expensive. And there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for it, but not enough for it to actually make money. And yeah, it's just, it seems, it seems really, really weird. I think he probably was really happy with how it turned out. And he seems like, you know, he's enthusiastic about everything he does, except Mimic. Mm. Um, and Blade 2, which I think he, he thinks, even though I think that's a really fun film, he doesn't seem to think of it as being particularly his because it was him stepping into a for, into a franchise that was already being run by like David S. Goyer and Wesley Snipes. But it, he definitely seems to be in love with all of the stuff that he does. So whether or not it does well probably matters less than the fact that he got to make it. Mm. Um, which is probably why the fact he couldn't get uh, the Mountains of Madness or anything off the ground is probably really galling, because they're, they're clearly all of these projects that he wants to do that just don't happen either through money or through like time mm. i think is was mountains of madness is that we've i think we've had this conversation before is that the lovecraft one he was going to do yeah it was going to be like an r-rated 3d lovecraft film starring tom cruise mm, I'd, uh, w- I'd watch it yeah it sounds like it would be really interesting and fun but yeah apparently studio said we're not going to spend 150 million on this uh which is a shame, really, because like obviously the success of Pan's Labyrinth took him into another tier in that he could command more money and more budgets and make films on a grander scale. I mean, that's the only reason he got to make Hellboy 2, mm-hmm. you know, a sequel to a film that did OK, but wasn't screaming out to be sequelized. Uh, he suddenly had a lot of cachet. Uh, but uh, the more money that people are willing to give you, the harder it is to make movies, it seems. Mm, yeah, I think him and Lovecraft would be an amazing fit. Um, he can definitely do the tentacles. Um, mm-hmm. he might yep. he might want to die about the racism. Uh, they're so in, inextricable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's half um, his charm was his terrifying and horrible beliefs. Yeah, yeah. I had a conversation with someone about Lovecraft earlier today, and I, that's pretty much what I brought it down to. It's like tentacles and racism because <laughs> it's what we call problematic work. You know, when it's clearly amazing. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of racist. Like Huckleberry Finn or something. You know what I mean, um, <laughs> yeah. his his two inexplicable horrors are, you know, kind of tentacle beasts from another realm who will destroy us all and black people. Mm. Is that seems to be H.P. Lovecraft's two great fears? Mm, mm. Like Nigel Farage, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think to him they're indistinguishable. But yeah, <laughs> I think there's uh, kind of to wrap this up now. Um, if you're in the L.A. area. I do believe that Mr. Del Toro has an exhibition on now at the kind of the the, the Los Angeles um, kind of Institute of Modern Art or Modern Art Museum. One of those. I haven't been bothered to research it, but you know, uh, look it up. And it's all his kind of notebooks on display and a whole bunch of props from his films. And I saw someone posing with like they could you could go and stand next to the pale man. And I was like, why would you want to do that? It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I was watching some of the making of docs, and there's one bit where they're talking about the pale man suit and it's kind of just sitting there and then suddenly it moves and you realize, Oh shit, Doug Jones is in there. Mm. But even, even, and that's just spooky as, as hell anyway, but it was very, even when it wasn't moving, it's still like this horrifying image. Um, 
but yeah it, it, his stuff is great uh in kind of the physical designs and everything uh is all, is all really really cool uh uh, and also, I can recommend meeting him. He's a really nice guy in person, because <laughs> uh, I got to meet him at a book signing for The Strain a few years ago, uh, and uh, he was so nice, I almost cried talking to him, <laughs> because uh, I don't do very well meeting people I admire. Uh, it has to be said, I always find it a little overwhelming, but he was just like a super nice guy who uh, assured me that everything in Pan's Labyrinth is real, uh, <laughs> as opposed to what uh, a, f- a bunch of people I was uh, i was friends with and who would kind of like discuss the film said oh you know because the captain doesn't see the fawn at the end that means that none of it happened and i was like no no because like there's a shit ton of magical stuff that happens that doesn't make any sense if it's not all real uh and so like he said oh no it is all real you know go tell them and i was like i already have he says well tell them again and, mm. uh, it was it was really really lovely and charming uh guy mm. uh, it has to be said well, that's good that like you go to pieces when you meet your heroes. I every time I've met someone who is like kind of vaguely famous, um, I've played it cool to the point of coming across like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so like, uh, which has been like really terrible because I've like worked with a few people who I kind of regard as heroes, and I was just like, oh, just play it cool, play it cool, and then just come off looking like a massive dick. I think the the two best experiences I've ever had meeting a famous person are. Uh... Guillermo del Toro and the time I interviewed Mark Kermode mm-hmm. just because he was like really nice and had can- he'd cancelled every other interview that day because he had to re-record some stuff for his book I think for his audiobook but they kept the interview with me because I was travelling down from Sheffield uh, and so I got to talk to him for an hour when before I was only scheduled to talk for like 20 minutes and it was a really 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 good conversation so my blog if anyone wants to read it amy95blog.com um, but also uh, I think I think the most um Kind of the best in that it was exactly what I would have expected it to be like was when I met Nick Cave mm-hmm. uh, again at a book signing for the death of Bunny Monroe, where they said uh, Mr. Cave will take no questions and no photos. <laughs> you just kind of like handed him his book, signed it, he asked your name and then you left. I was like, this is the most Nick Cave thing I've ever seen happen. So he, he signed your book and then asked your name but <laughs> yeah. just so he'd know it <laughs> and then give you your book back. Yeah, uh, yeah, but th- that was that was a, a that was very cool because it was amazing getting to meet Nick Cave and also crushing because it's like yeah I mean nothing to this guy. Mm. Um, I think um, my while we're dropping names, um, I'll trump Nick Cave by the time uh, that when I was ten years old, I met a legendary Northern Irish comedian Frank Carson, um, <laughs> who was working. Uh, he came to open a conservatory showroom that my mum was working at. And I had just played in the um, Suffolk uh, Cub Scouts football final, um, which we won. Um, I don't want to go on about my sporting achievements, <laughs> age 10. But I had no time to change or anything. I turned up at this conservatory opening. I don't know, Christ knows why I was being dragged to this. In my full kit with a trophy under my arm. And I met him and he kind of gave me the old, it's a cracker spiel, which, you know, is his catchphrase. Um, and at the time, he was the chairman of South End Football Club, which was something that I didn't know. He told me this, said he'd sign me when I was older, and he fucking reneged on that deal, because here I am. <laughs> like, he could clearly say I had potential, and he did nothing about it. And my life has been irreversibly changed um, down to the kind of point where I'm just recording a podcast late at night, um, and I'm not a professional footballer, which... <laughs> and he's dead now, I can't do anything about it. You know what I mean? You can well, you can't slander the dead, so 
Well, <laughs> you can drag his name through the mud on this show at least. Oh, damn straight, I will. Fucking Carson. Anyway, <laughs> um, what have we got for recommends this week, Ed? I'm going to recommend a TV show that has just debuted on FX here in the US. Uh, first episode, I believe, is also available on YouTube. It's probably region locked, but I'm sure there are ways around that. Uh, called Atlanta, which is created by Donald Glover, who is perhaps most famous for being uh, an actor in things like The Martian and Community, or for his career as Childish Gambino as a kind of a, at one point, comedic rapper and now less so um he's a kind of very multi-talented guy and this show kind of brings together a lot of the different facets of of his life it's a comedy set in and around the kind of atlanta hip-hop community he plays a guy whose cousin who's called paper who goes by the name uh, Paperboy, starts to get a bit of heat and starts to be you know get a bit of success so he decides he's going to be his manager and uh it's got a kind of an i, I obviously can't speak to how realistic it is but it has like an air of authenticity it has a sense of a milieu that feels real and lived in uh and is really kind of fun to watch in it's also uh doesn't shy away from the very negative uh aspects of hip-hop in that it opens with the three characters shooting someone uh apparently to death um and that is something i was not expecting uh and but what uh it does come across and which is not surprising is it's very very funny uh donald glover is super charming it's got a really good cast and based on the first two episodes that have aired so far it looks like it's going to be a very promising addition to fx's comedy stable uh you know very much in the the vein of something like uh louis not not necessarily in kind of the more surreal aspects but certainly in the idea of a comedic voice being given an opportunity to do exactly what they want mm. If it is anything like Louis, that murder will kind of uh, snowball through several episodes into an elaborate fart gag, um, <laughs> you know, which is something to look forward to. Um, I'm going to recommend something inspired by Pan's Labyrinth this week. Uh, I'm going to recommend the uh, Mexican film E Tu Mama Tambien. Um, uh, apologies to anyone who can even recognise Spanish at my pronunciation there, but it's um, kind of came out in that first wave of uh, Mexican films from the same bunch of directors. This came from Alfonso Cuaron. And it is a kind of a road movie with um, uh, Maribel Verdú, who he plays Mercedes in Pan's Labyrinth, and also Gael Garcia Bernal and uh, Diego Luna, that's the guy, uh, who you're going to see in Star Wars Rogue One at the end of this year kind of a career making film for those guys but it's a kind of like a pretty kind of explicit kind of tale about a road trip of guys kind of exploring their identity and exploring their sexuality but also women dealing with uh, cancer and yeah it's kind of like a really really good film what's amazing about it is that um warner brothers saw this kind of explicit kind of uh, world cinema release and gave the director the job of making harry potter 3 um which is something i can't quite get my head around <laughs> um yeah yeah, but that's it's a really good film. Uh, it's on all Netflixes, I think. It's uh, definitely worth a punt if you enjoyed Pan's Labyrinth. Well, everyone, that's your lot on the subject of Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, leave us a little review. Why don't you? Uh, you can find us on Twitter, um, which is at SRS underscore podcast, and on Facebook as well. Uh, we'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. 